Tragedy. Tragedy. The um, gorilla in Edinburgh Zoo died. Um, the gorilla was the main attraction of all the attractions in Edinburgh Zoo, and it was coming up to a bank holiday. What were the authorities at the zoo to do? And so they put out an ad for someone to come and be over the bank holiday at least, the gorilla at uh, Edinburgh Zoo. They hired a, a full um, size costume and put an ad. And Paddy and Murphy both applied for the job and Paddy was successful and got the job of being the gorilla inside a full-sized uh, gorilla suit at Edinburgh Zoo for the bank holiday. And Paddy took to the role into the cage he was, there he was, and all the sort of different bits and pieces are, are around. There's um, there was sort of bars to climb on and, and sort of bananas to eat and things like that. But the, the real, the thing he loved the best was this great big tyre uh, suspended, suspended on a long rope um, on which he could swing backwards and forwards and the crowd flocked. They loved the new gorilla. Seemed to be so much more active and alive than the previous gorilla that just sort of sat in the corner and stared you out. Uh, and so here, here's this gorilla swinging to and fro higher and higher, higher and higher until, oh no. <laughs> he, he just loses his grip on the rope right at the, the peak of the swing and flies off the tyre, somersaults through the air and lands in a rather undignified clump in the next door cage, which belonged to the lion. And the lion, which had been asleep up until then, was awoken by this um, new arrival. And with a sort of big paw, lazily wiped away the sleep from its eye, woke up and saw there, in the middle of the cage, what he took to be his next square meal and rises himself to his full height and begins to pour his way over to the gorilla, whereupon Paddy lost his nerve. And seeing this, uh, this lion walking towards him, salivating uh, at the mouth, he begins to, to shout, Help! Help! Get me out! Get me out! Whereupon a voice emerges from inside the lion, Paddy, stop your squealing or you'll lose us both our jobs. <laughs> um, you're very kind to laugh. I'm sure you've all heard that joke before. Uh, it's a new one, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, Indian, he, he turned into. The reason for that joke is, I, I guess, it's sort of a slightly cliched question. What makes a, a gorilla? Is it um, what appears to be on the outside or is it what's on the inside? that makes for a real gorilla, or we could say lion. And um, in a sense, that's been our sort of one of the questions that we've been presupposing through this course. What, what makes a genuine Christian? Is it, is it the outward appearance? Um, is it uh, the, the fact that we might attend church meetings on a regular basis, or read the Bible, or even pray? Or is it something deeper and more uh, intrinsic to our very being? What lies on the inside that counts? And we've been looking at... Um, the person and work of the Holy Spirit in that regard. Just a quick recap, it's been a couple of weeks now. Um, week one, we were looking at the Spirit as the presence of God, and, and closely allied to that was this sense of the Spirit as, as a power or energy. Um, breath, ruach in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, or pneuma is the most frequent word used of the Spirit in the New Testament, from which we get pneumatic, pneumatic drill, the power drill. And so this idea of breath or energy of power, and um, although um, nowadays the, the idea, the term, the Holy Ghost, the traditional term 
for, for the spirit is perhaps thought to be um, um, a little bit misleading, perhaps, post-Scooby-Doo. Um, <laughs> Pre-Scooby-Doo, the, 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 uh, a person's ghost was thought to be that that was the spiritual energy that resided within the flesh and blood. Um, so it was a sort of healthy term, in a sense, for the life of a person. And, you know, to give up the ghost is to, is to, you know, to give up life, if you like. Uh, and so we've seen that the spirit all the way through scripture was this energy, this power um, behind the universe. He was there in creation. He, was, he is the one who gives human beings their, uh, their ability to, to be alive to God, uh, that God breathes in the breath of uh, his life, if you like, to this, this form that he makes. And the man became a living being. And in Judges we read, I didn't mention this, but just um, um, it's worth noting in passing that the Spirit is uh, detailed as coming to particular people at particular times. So, for example, if you're taking notes, you might just want to jot down and look up later. In Judges 6, verse 34, the Spirit comes to Gideon in his weakness and um, he is strong enough to trust God and to overcome the Midianites with his tiny army. Or again, the spirit is detailed as coming on to Samson, who, when he was bound, remember he had his hair cut, he lost his strength, and uh, the Philistines eventually bind him. But um, the, the scriptures recall in Judges 15 and verse 14 that the spirit came on Samson and he snapped himself free from the chains that bound him. So the spirit enabled, uh, enables people to be strong when feeling weak, to feel strong and empowered when bound. And uh, all the way along, we see the Spirit's work is, is this sense of energy, of, of, of life, of dynamism. Uh, we see it in Luke chapter 1. Look at the number of times. Bit of homework. Read through Luke chapter 1 and mark the number of times, given the silence of 400 years or so between what we have as the Old Testament and, uh, and the, the advent of Jesus. Mark how many times the Spirit is mentioned around the events of Jesus' birth. Clearly there's something of a recreation that's about to take place in the birth of this boy, Jesus. And the Spirit is everywhere. John the Baptist and Mary and Elizabeth. Uh, uh, and again, he's mentioned specifically. Notice how uh, at a time of potential weakness for Jesus, the temptation in the wilderness, I've, I've written a bit about this in the, in the newsletter, um, it's the Spirit who leads Jesus into and out of the wilderness. It's in the strength of the Spirit that he's able to resist the devil. The writer of the Hebrews um, details that uh, the uh, Christ's sacrifice for our redemption was done through the eternal spirit, Hebrews 9 and verse 14. So the spirit was there, kind of, again another Trinitarian reference, at the cross, enabling Christ, giving him the, the power, the strength, the ability to go through the horrific sacrifice on the cross. It's through the spirit that we're born again. It's through the spirit that we live. So... The, the spirit, this sort of energizing, empowering presence of God in our lives. And we saw the second week, um, when's that, three weeks ago now, salvation as um, being, if we're going to look at it in a fully orbed and, and a sort of whole, a holistic way in the Bible, salvation is in Christ and by the spirit that we are, uh, we are if you like, um, we experience a positional reality through Christ. We are no longer slaves. And it's by the Spirit that we recognize our ex-slave status is indeed translated into sonship. So there's a, a positional reality in Christ and an experienced reality in the Spirit. Um, 
And then we saw just two weeks ago, the last session we had, uh, in answer to the question, well, how do we live now, spirit-filled living, Mark 1, if you like. And we looked at Paul's command in the letter to the Ephesians to be full of the Spirit, to go on being filled with the Spirit. Because the Spirit has come as a, if you like, a deposit or a down payment, a first fruits guaranteeing what is to come. He, he guarantees now, and we can experience and know now, that the end time, the eschatological or end time promises are fulfilled now. The Spirit has brought something of the future into the present, and we can know that for ourselves now. And so um, the kingdom of God, um, and the kingdom of God is just anywhere where God is kinging it. The kingdom of God, be it in the heavenly realms, be it on earth, be it under the earth, wherever it is, the kingdom of God has begun. And the church, the gathering of called out ones, Christians, people full of the spirit, uh, where we see it sort of manifest in a way that we can recognize. Human beings together, marking this new life, this new energy, life in the spirit. So, if the spirit has come, if God's down payment, God's first fruits has come such that we can deposit it and bank it, we can taste of it. If the kingdom of God has come as evidenced in our lives by the Spirit, my question is, and I, it's, it's a sort of a question I want us to, to kind of wrestle with together. It's not a me putting it onto you, but us together. I mean, do you ever question this yourself? Why is the church the expression of the kingdom of God, that the place where the manifest presence of God, if anywhere it was going to be experienced and seen and felt, ought to be seen and felt and experienced. Why is the church so anemic, so ineffective in the West in particular today? What's, what's gone wrong? Why, why in this community, let's, let's just you know, focus it in on, on us, how, how come all the people living and working around here who crisscross the green, and how come so many of them don't even know we're here? If what we sing about and what we read about is, is true, where is the potency of the church? What's missing? What's gone wrong? I want to suggest, and we'll get into groups just in a minute, um, for you to kind of come back to me on that or just you know engage with one another but I want to suggest two things within the context of this um, now and not yet or already and not yet kingdom living which we're called upon to experience and live I want to suggest two things one is in answer to that question that I think by and large the church and Christians have lost that end time perspective that the spirit brings I think quite a lot of our teaching, and that's why I wanted to touch on salvation earlier on in, in, the, in this series, in this course. I think quite a lot of our teaching has focused on what we've been saved from. What one commentator, with a slight tongue-in-cheek, calls the gospel of sin management. Um, and to caricature that, he, says, he basically says, here's a holy God, here are sinful people. How can sinful people and a holy God come together? Um, the problem of sin needs to be dealt with. And so God, in his grace, has come down in Jesus and dealt with the sin, taken away the sin, so that we can be in relationship with God. And um, then this commentator has basically said, and, and that's basically it. 
So it's it all about what Christ has done to deal with sin. But the gospel has very little to say about how now shall we live. And so, and so the church, with so little teaching or equipment or awareness, knows that it's no longer a slave to sin, but doesn't know how to live like a son. Uh, he, he has this sort of image of us basically getting saved, and Jesus, if you like, putting a barcode on our foreheads, and then we're warehoused in these stored in these great big warehouses with pointy roofs and towers with bells, and we just sort of stay there until we die. And then we sort of are transported to heaven where there's this great big sort of scanner, like a supermarket checkout scanner, and beeps off, well, yeah, you're in, you're okay. And he says, is, is, that, is that really the full gospel? There's nothing, in a sense, wrong with it, there's nothing inaccurate with that, but is that everything that can be said about salvation? And I think because we... By and large, particularly I think in the evangelical wing, we've tended to major on, to borrow that caricature, the gospel of sin management. We've lost, if we've ever had in the first place, something of the future end-time reality that has been made real to us now in the present by the Spirit. Any absence in biblical teaching on the Spirit will probably lead, lead to an absence in the ability to see in an end time perspective and the, the eschatological perspective, the end time perspective of the, the future kingdom coming into the present now. And because we have no taste of the harvest that's to come or no um, sum of money of the full payment that's to come, we don't know how to live with genuine Christian hope. That's the first thing I want to suggest. The second is rightly that we're aware that we live in the tension. That although the kingdom has already come, it has not yet fully come. So we're very aware because of the gospel of sin management, um, if you accept that, that thesis. We're very aware of the fact that we, are, we live, if you like, life is full of infection, the fall, and so human life is tainted and we are infected. But though we are infected, we are not yet fully perfected. And so we become, if you like, the the, the fool and our infection means that we become slightly obsessed with how how can we be better? And in our, and again, here's where I want to sort of uh, kind of focus it down to um, the, the last 100, 150 years or so. With the rise of, if you like, individualism and a kind of rationalism, it's down to each of us as individuals to work out ways in which I can improve myself, self-improvement. I mean, how many books are there or courses are there? If you go to the local cafe and look at all the leaflets for some kind of um, self-help, um, self-relief, self-therapy, um, where I measure myself or seek to improve myself myself as an individual against some kind of prescribed criteria for wholeness. Um, so you know, this is what it is to be whole or, or real or human. And it's, a, it's, it's very much an individualistic thing. So actually it become, we can become quite narcissistic, quite very inward looking and introspective um, in sort of broadly, mildly spiritual contexts and terms. Now, you, I don't know, you may, you may want to take issue with this, but that... I think it's my sort of reading of what's, what can tend to happen in, even in Christian circles, quite established Christian circles. The consequence of that is with both the insufficiency of a future end time 
perspective made real in the present by the work of the Spirit. And with this sort of obsession with our infection, our fallenness, our sinfulness, we tend to read the New Testament and tend to understand Christian living now as essentially a, a, a struggle or a battle between what the Bible in, in, in traditional translations would call the flesh, um, in the modern translations is the world or worldliness. In other words, that sense of fallenness, that sense of, of, of sinfulness, a battle between the flesh and the spirit. And my personal experience is that too often the flesh wins out. Too often I, I fall again to that sin or that pattern or that habit that I know falls short of the glory of God. And so I tend to reduce my personal lived out experience of Christianity as an ongoing battle between the flesh and the spirit. And I just want to say that that is, a, that is not the biblical worldview. It's not the biblical view of how we should see ourselves. Because the biblical view is that the kingdom has already come, period. Now it's not here completely, but it is here to stay. And therefore, if we are in Christ, we, we enter into the kingdom. If we're in Christ, we are baptised in the Spirit. Those are one and the same things, I want to argue biblically. I know there is a Pentecostal line of theology that would argue separately, but that's another discussion. Um, and actually, interestingly, more and more um, uh, uh, sort of Pentecostal theologians are coming into viewing it as much more of a sort of continuum. So, born again, baptised in the Spirit, the, that's, the, that's the, the thing of the sponge in the water and the water in the sponge, are one and the same thing. And if we are baptised in the Spirit and full of the Spirit, therefore, we are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Let's just see where Paul writes that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, page 1097. Uh, let's go from the, right at the top of the page, verse 15. And he died for all, Paul writes, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly or fleshly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. And that is uh, symptomatic of a number of passages that we could turn to. Um, I've put references there. Galatians 2.20, Paul, in a sense, is his autobiography. I've been crucified with Christ, and I, I no longer live. My, my old way, the, the flesh, the soul, the flesh life, the, the way of the world, has died with Christ. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and uh, died as a, I can't remember the end of the verse, but died as a sacrifice for me, something like that. Um, uh, I, I have been crucified. I used to live one way. I now live another. And Paul and the other New Testament writers know nothing of this kind of struggle between um, kind of worldliness and spirit living. If you, are, if you are born again by the Spirit of God, then you are a new creation. 
Now I want to pause there just a minute because um, this, I don't know whether this is challenging or not. Maybe you're, you're just going tick, tick, tick. Yep, yep, yep. Absolutely right. But I think one of the, one of the things that it's, it's important to realise for us is that every single one of us, every single person in the world has a theological starting point. The atheist, his theological starting point is, or her theological starting point is, God does not exist. There is no God. Well, that, that is a statement about God. It is non-existent. And that's their starting point. So they view, they, their next few steps marching into a worldview are from that centering premise. Or the agnostic is one whose um, gnostic knowledge are without. So without knowledge, you can't be certain. I'm not sure. And that's their theological starting point. I can't be certain. Maybe if I step here, maybe I'll walk into the light. Or maybe I'll walk into the dark. Don't know. But that's their starting point. For the Christians in Corinth, if we get time, we might look at this in a bit more detail next week. Their starting point, to caricature it slightly, was that heaven had come. They had what's known as an over-realized eschatology. In other words, they totally went overboard with the end time now. They thought this was completely it. They, they, some were deluded enough to think they were living in heaven now. That's why some of the, the, the sort of immoral, immorality and stuff was taking place. Because they, there's no marriage in heaven, so there's no marriage. So no marriage. So these guys were sort of burning with lust and there's immorality going on. Because they're not in heaven and, you know, what do I do with these kind of lustful feelings I have? And uh, it, that, was, that was because the Greens were saying, well, we're in, made the mistake of saying we're in heaven now. And Paul says, no, you plunkers. There's a, there's a not yet to this. Uh, calm down, simmer down. But their starting point was, their theological starting point was heaven. And, and everything worked out from there. Now, what's your theological starting point? You strip it all away. Where do you, where do you start from? What's first base? So we'll pause there for a minute, um, just for us to reflect ourselves. You might want to jot down a few notes, have a little scribble. So just a bit of silence as we think about that, that ourselves. And then um, why don't we just sort of swap notes with one or two people who are sitting around about us. So let's have five minutes. What's your theological center, your starting point? Um, and my contention, just to recap that little bit, and I'm, so, I, I'm sorry if I've been a bit long-winded, uh, and I hope it's been clear, but my contention, and again, you, you can shoot me down on this, you may disagree, but my contention is that broadly, in, let's say broadly in the evangelical church, um, for some time, the, the thinking has been, has been so premised, the theological starting point is, I've, I've managed in Christ to escape from sin. Sin is the piano, black. Okay, so in Christ, I'm sort of getting away bit by bit from sin. I'm incrementally becoming more and more of a Christian, if you like, as I grow in my salvation. Uh, but the reference point is escape from sin. And I, I want to argue that actually Paul would have seen salvation as that in part. That's, that's part of the story. It is indeed redemption, buying out of Slavery. It is indeed justification, being declared righteous before God. But that isn't the centre for Paul. Whereas I think in some evangelical circles, justification by faith is the centre for the New Testament writers, ostensibly Paul. And I think for Paul, the centre is much nearer 
the end time promises of God have been made real to us now by the Spirit. So I'm being drawn to the future. I'm not escaping from the past. I, I mean, and, and when I polarize it like that, I'm not, I'm not, if I emphasize A, that doesn't mean I don't believe in B. It's, it's both and. But, but to write something of a, what I perceive to be an imbalance, and again, I, this may be my perception and you, you may disagree with me. I, I think there's an onus on us to really get into what Paul is saying about the, the end time reality of the Spirit. Now, for sure, there is the not yet of the kingdom. We're not yet there. Paul, for example, and this is in the notes, um, Philippians 3 and verse 12, just leading up to that, he says, uh, Philippians 3 and verse 7, page 1115, if you want to look at it, whatever were gains to me, he's talking about his credentials as a, a, a um, zealous and pious Jew, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. You see the orientation, he's he's clearly not yet, not that I've attained all this, but that's where I'm heading. I'm looking towards what God in Christ has already revealed for me. Um, So, Paul and the other writers knew nothing of this sort of sense of, you know, if I don't, if I don't look out, I'll sneak back into flesh. If I'm not on my guard, if I don't try hard enough, I'll sneak back into sin. This sort of sin-spirit kind of axis. It was clear that, that the line had been completely drawn under Torah or under law observance, under uh, the old way of being the people of God, completely smashed by the new way which is life in the spirit. So Romans 8, these will be familiar um, verses to you. Therefore, Romans 8 verse 1, therefore there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful humanity to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in human flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their mindset on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their mindset on what the spirit desires. You can't have both. It's one or the other. And so if you are born again, you are, you are part of, if you're part of the people of God, you are part, I mean, how aware of it you are, how, how alive you are to it is a different question, but you are part of the end time people of God. So to come back to the ineffectual witness of the church, the question is, the ultimate question, I, I put it to you is, how should we live as those people? How should you and I live as God's end-time people, future people in the present, now? That, it seems to me, is the real question that's tagged onto spirit-filled living. Given that we live in the not yet, 
given that we live amidst infection, how are we to begin to live out and work out, by God's help, our perfection within that context, within the tension of the not yet, but the now? So, so two convictions, here they are in, in, in the sort of italic bold uh, and the hash points there. Two convictions that I think run right at the core of the New Testament understanding of what it is to be alive in Christ. One is that there is a tension of living in the already not yet of the kingdom of God. It's just a tension that we need to acknowledge and recognize and live with. But secondly, the, the conviction of the total sufficiency of the Holy Spirit for living in the not yet. The total sufficiency of the Holy Spirit for living in the not yet. That is, if you slice the New Testament writers open, that is what bleeds from their core. We have everything we need in Christ and by his spirit to live as these end time people. To be the, 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 to be the first fruits, to be the deposit for the world. It was ever thus. That's what God promised to Abraham, wasn't it? I, I, I want you to be a light. Why did he send uh, Abraham and promise him the land and a people and everything? In order that they would be a light to the Gentiles. Genesis 12, first few verses. And, and here is God just renewing his promises through Christ, by his spirit, to his renewed or new covenant people. It's exactly the same thing. So how do we live in this tension? How do we live as God's end time people now, full of his spirit, given that the kingdom of heaven is not yet here complete, although it is here to stay um, why don't in, again, the groups of two, three, four, just for a few minutes, how do we work in this um, tension of the now and the not yet? How do we live out God's end time people in the world in which we live today? A few minutes on that.